This is the next best thing. Don't go. Delightful. Okay. So joining us now is Sam Swanson, actor, improviser, comedian. Uh, sure. Why not? I mean, uh, musician. Yeah. Let's stick with that. I uh, I think if uh, I'm just ever so barely a comedian in that I'm, <laughs> I'm in the improv scene, I, I would never like go up and do stand up. Oh, okay. Years, I was gonna but... say because I guess that is kind of a distinguishing factor. There, was, <laughs> I saw someone interviewed from SNL the other day. And uh, Keenan Thompson, who's been on this now for 15 years. Oh, yeah, yeah. And someone asked him if he was a comedian, if he considered himself a comedian. And I kind of thought, like, that's almost offensive. He's, <laughs> he's been on SNL for 15 years. Yeah. And he was like, no. He said, no. He says, I really consider myself an actor. Sure. Who's in a funny show. So I guess there is a difference. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so on September 7th of 2017... Uh, well, actually, let's give a little background here. So Sam and I were in an improv class together at UCB, mm-hmm. Upright Citizens Brigade. And not long after that, on September 7th of 2017, he you posted a very personal story mm-hmm. and information about yourself mm-hmm. that had to do with not just a situation you were dealing with, but kind of an ongoing uh, struggle with depression, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's, that's an apt way to put it. Well... Would you say, so when did you start noticing that you struggled with this? Uh, with, with depression? Or? Yeah. I mean, when did you know that it wasn't just everyday sadness? Um, you know, I, uh, I don't know if I necessarily have one particular moment that where it finally clicked with me that I had this. I think it was an extremely gradual thing that, um, you know, for years and years, I can at least remember times when I was in high school, uh, when I felt this way, where I sort of felt this, uh, I don't know, it's it's almost nihilistic feelings towards myself as far as like, uh, nothing outwardly like suicidal or, or depressive in the traditional sense, but just sort of like, if I was feeling really down on myself, I would, uh, find myself, I guess, in my bed for hours on end, not necessarily tired, but not really willing to, or wanting to do anything, even if I had some kind of, uh, impending, deadline on a project or or whatever and just sort of occasionally wondering to myself what it would be like to I guess no longer exist just sort of blink out of existence I, I guess that'd be kind of the, the first uh moments of, of feeling that way and also being aware of that and I never identified it as depression I just sort of identified it as just this part of me right I, I was always an actor or creative in one sense or another. And I just figured that this was completely normal behavior as far as uh, creatives where I thought that they were always constantly down on themselves, uh, self-effacing and saying, I, I know I can do better. You, you know, I can't believe I said this or did this and I'm a big idiot. Right. Well, okay. So I do, I want to kind of break down the post you wrote and kind of, well, like read some of it and then we can talk about it. Yeah, a little bit sure, better. sure, sure. So you mentioned first becoming aware of what might have been depression after moving back home to Fort Worth, right? Yeah, Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, in 2012. Mm-hmm. And it says for a while you do your best to ignore it. You wouldn't pay any heed to small but sudden shifts in mood. Yeah. Uh, you'd circumvent any internal self-hatred into playful outward self-deprecation. Now that sounds like very commonplace. I mean, like <laughs> yeah. really, I think people do that a lot. Every Because people do have ups and downs and whatnot oh and, yeah no and, that's entirely common and like there's nothing yeah i mean it's, it's a self-defense mechanism i think i would know i would get upset or, or embarrassed about something i might make a joke about it if someone is there and notices it as notices it as well and rather than just brush it off like i would you know while continuing a conversation with this person in the back of my head i'd still be 
kind of yelling at myself for something you had said, something I said or did that was probably completely inconsequential or, or really nothing. Sure. Right. Yeah. They probably wouldn't have even noticed. No. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, and, but there was in this occasion, there was a triggering event and that was a breakup of a fairly difficult relationship. Yeah. Um, so I met someone a few years after I moved back to Texas. And at the time I thought I was going to go to Los Angeles and be an actor there. Um, I met this girl who later became my, uh, my girlfriend and in an acting class. Uh, no, she was actually, she's a, she's a journalist. She, she, you know, attended theater. She had really nothing to do with it beyond that, okay. but she was a journalist in Dallas. Our relationship took off pretty quickly and, uh, we we fell in love and we decided uh, we were going to we we both kind of wanted to get out of Texas, but um, fa- I'm fast forwarding a little bit. But she got a job offer to work as a journalist in New York mm. for a, a rather uh, prominent uh, cable news network, wow. and I you know this was giving kind of an upset to my future plans, but I decided, you know, I can still go to New York. I can still study at the UCB, which is something I've always wanted to do. I can still be an actor out here. I know it's going to be tough, but I'll just make some adjustments and it's fine. I have a few friends out here. And basically uh, the relationship after we, almost immediately after we moved made this huge, uh, I guess, tonal shift. And now do you think, do you think maybe it had something to do with the fact that you didn't really want to be here? I mean, like what, when did you, what do you think triggered the tonal shift? Well, I don't really know. It's, um, and I'm getting, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but, um, I will say when, when she broke it off with me and I'll get to how all that happened uh, in a bit, but, uh, I was never given, a, a I was never really given a reason beyond she just wanted to end it. Um, I later found out through a lot of things that she sent me after the fact that she was, she, she was sort of, uh, I don't want to say obsessed. Uh, as, as bad a breakup as this is, I'm not trying, I'm trying my best not to like villainize, villainize her because I don't want to come off that way. Um, but she, she was very, she really seemed to want to come off as having money and not really struggling with money. Mm-hmm. And, um, I know that she, you know, was she when we moved here, she already had a career set up and I was going to be a struggling actor and I ended up making coffee at a Whole Foods for a couple of years, like working full time, making very little um, uh, from that. And I remember like first day we moved here, we made an agreement that I was going to pay roughly a little more than a third of rent because I was making less money than her, but I would pay all the utilities and I would do all these other things. And um, with the understanding that if I ever made more money that we would bridge that gap, but she would get upset, um, in small ways with, uh, if at any point I ever like said around her friends, like, Oh, I'm, I'm broke or, or, you know, just making a joke about that. I remember one time she actually, this is one of the few memories I have of her getting mad at me about something that I can look back and laugh at it. Cause it's so ridiculous to me. Mm-hmm. But I remember within the first week of us living here mm-hmm. and I chalked this up to like stress of moving here. Uh, Cause it's never easy moving halfway across the country, mm-hmm. but we met with a bunch of her friends who are also journalists. And I think one of them had her brother there. Who's a successful TV actor. And we were at some really nice bar, I think in Williamsburg uh, or, may, or yeah, I'm pretty sure it was in Williamsburg. And I, we get there, I don't have a job yet. I have like a decent amount of money saved up, but I remember looking at the menu 
And beer selection in New York is completely different than it is in Texas, as you can probably imagine. Also, the price difference is outrageous. Yeah. It is outrageous. Yeah. And like, I don't know anyone at this table. I know it's important that I impress them and I come off well and... For you or for her? Oh, well, for both of us, okay. because, I mean, I knew it was important to her, but also, you know. You always want to present yourself well? Yeah. I, I mean, when I moved here, I maybe knew two people that I had been keeping up with. There were maybe like a handful of other people that I knew, but I hadn't talked to in years. And mm-hmm. I felt weird just being like, hey, I'm here now. Do you want to hang out? Sure. So I wanted to make as many connections as sure. I could. So I'm looking at the menu as we're like ordering our drinks and I don't recognize anything and uh, and everything's like uh, eight bucks or, or more per glass. And I remember thinking like, I don't want to order any of this. Uh, and then like realize I hate it and realize I'm just burning money, like, like sipping this down and being miserable. And then the very last thing on the beer list was Miller High Life. And I remember like drinking that at so many like punk venues mm-hmm. back, back in Dallas. I thought, great, I don't care if it's six bucks. I will get that. I know what that is. Mm-hmm. And the waiter comes over and says, what would you like? And I say Miller High Life. And she pokes her head around at me. We're like sitting two chairs away and she whispers at me, like a loud whisper, like, do not order that. Mm-hmm. And I go, why? And she goes, you're going to embarrass me. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was, yeah, it was so... Again, at the time, I took it as like, she's probably stressed about moving. And, eh, so it's probably an overreaction. And she's, it's very clear that like, she's afraid that everyone at the table is going to be so like boho and like look at my beer and go, oh, you're drinking that. I see. I'm like, and it eventually came and like someone at the table said, what are you drinking? I said, oh, high life. And they go, oh, cool. And, and I sort of like looked at her and shrugged and right. <laughs> like, it's really angered her to no end. Okay, so can I? So that first of all, everything you just shared was not in your post. Yeah, but from what? No, but from <laughs> from the post itself, and now from even just hearing this little bit, and I don't know this person, and we don't need to get into sure, it. Yeah, yeah. But like, it sounds like this with the money thing and mm-hmm. with this story, it sounds like it was a a control and kind of almost a power, like a lording over. It, it was, you, yeah, it was. She, that. And she can, you know, maybe she got mad about the money thing, but like the fact that she was, you know, had a fairly established job and whatever mm-hmm. that when getting mad at you for ordering that type of beer, that seems like a very much a control thing. Well, yeah, I think it was, I think it was that, I mean, I'll go ahead and cut to the chase about this right now. I, I was, what this ended up becoming was a, a, a at times a very emotionally Abusive. abusive relationship. Constantly, I would just be going in for audition after audition and not getting anything. And I knew that was going to be the case, whether if I lived in New York or Los Angeles. And so did she, frankly. I mean, like she knew you were an actor before you got here. Yeah, I actually had a decent amount of success back in, in Dallas-Fort Worth. I mean, I mean, you know, as you can probably imagine, the actor pool is there. It's, it's, yeah, it's smaller. It's still a metropolitan mm-hmm. city where like TV shows and commercials and movies and other things are filmed. Like, I, But I had a... I was getting a lot of actors, or I was getting a lot of equity work, and I was also doing pretty well as like a voice actor working for Funimation, doing a lot of uh, English dubs for like anime shows that would go on Adult Swim. I was getting commercial work, but I knew that was going to change when I moved here, and uh, I, I don't know if she didn't understand that or what, but it eventually came to, whenever I'd say, I don't think I'm going to get it, she would on multiple times say, that'd be nice if you actually booked something. And then when I did book things, I remember the first commercial I got when I, uh, after I moved here, like it was, uh, nine months after living here, I got my first commercial job and, um, I have no dialogue in it, but I'm playing the father of this precocious little girl. And like me and my 
fake wife in this commercial have no lines. And it's all this, just this girl talking, asking these questions. And we have these sort of comedic responses and it's fine. And um, I still auditioned for it. I was still picked for it. I still paid for it. But because I had no lines in it, she w- watched it. My, Liz watched it once and said, oh, well, did a lot of looking at the girl. Yeah. And, uh, n- no, like, congratulations. That's great. Not saying I need constant validation. No, this it, is different. I mean, yeah. let's be real here. This this is clearly an yeah, abusive and, relationship. Well, yeah, and, then, and and not that's not to say like that was the worst, but it got really bad at times. Like repeat. Like I mean, just, was the, now did she have any siblings? Is her did she, she has a, an abusive home? No, no, no. I mean, her parents were actually quite lovely and like were very uh, receptive of me the first time I met them. I remember she even warned me that they would potentially come off as kind of cold and distant when I met them. And they were very nice. I remember the first time I met them and had dinner with them, they, they said if I ever wanted to come up to their, uh, I think they had a house in, I want to say Illinois or some, some very far Northern state. And they said, if you're ever up there, you're more than welcome. Um, and she has a brother. So no, it's a perfectly normal family. Um, I will say when we moved here, uh, they knew she was moving to New York. She never told them we were living together Mm. and, I asked her why she said, I just don't, I feel weird telling them that I'm just like, yeah, but you know, I, we've said, I love you multiple times. We're in this committed relationship. Your, your parents know we're in a, in a relationship. Like you don't think that maybe they're going to wonder where I, if I'm still in Texas or here. And I remember like they eventually figured it out and they were not happy with her, like withholding this information. Sure. Do you think that the fact that you had, uh, proclivity to depression and kind of low self-esteem do you Mm -hmm. think that had anything to do with the fact that you were in this relationship willing to be in a relationship like this maybe i mean the thing is when we were in texas i mean she was she was a very different person that's that's when i fell in love with her at the time was um when we were there and i think that had a lot to do with the fact that we didn't have nearly as much to worry about but yeah i i don't know i think just a different side of her came out when she moved here um and I'll say this, like, I'm not, I don't want to come off as just this guy who's like, oh, I, I did nothing wrong in the relationship. I'm sure I made mistakes. Everyone does. But mm. part of the problem with being in this relationship was she absolutely refused to ever really talk about anything um, that I might have done wrong. Um, and I said very early in the relationship, because I've had problems in the past with like communication, that I wanted to have an open line of communication. Mm-hmm. And I know that's difficult, but that's ultimately going to be the thing that's going to make this relationship Wait, worth it. Is it difficult? I mean, like it, it can be, I mean, it it's sure it's, it's, it can be difficult, but I find it much more difficult to just sort of sit there in stony silence and be like, nothing is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just let it build up. Right. But I mean, you know, I, I, you know, when I was, when I fell in love with this person at the time, I, I felt so great and wonderful. That's why I felt like I could trust being in a relationship with her to the point where we could move, somewhere that uh, I have, I, I lived in New York when I was a child and I moved out when I was five. So I haven't been back here in a very long time. So this was altogether new to me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if like I can necessarily say the, my, my mental illness sort of informed whether or not I was going to be in this relationship. I just think I, at the time found someone I thought that I really connected with. And then it exacerbated when, so yeah. how long were you guys together overall? Overall, we were together for a little over two years. It was actually the longest relationship I ever had. Um, and um, it was, yeah, I, I don't want to make this like 
say, you know, I go on your show and just bash this person no, no, I dated, no, but no. there there is a whole rhyme to, 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 to this reason or whatever. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, we were together for a long time, and so yeah, I was still dealing with depression in a very unhealthy way, which was essentially not dealing with ignoring it. it. Right? Yeah, or. Yeah, just inventing excuses for it. Like, I'm, I'm sad, but it's only because I'm stressed and, you know, I'm still adjusting to, to living here and, and whatever. And, um, you know, my, my girlfriend's saying things that make me feel awful, but, you know, I'm sure she doesn't mean that. I'm, well, that's different. Yeah. So, so like, <laughs> the feelings and, you know, going to the self-deprecation, trying to deal, that's one thing. But the the girlfriend saying mean things, that's that's an added harsh thing so when you yeah so the so you were having a hard time while you were here and suddenly you decided to open up to her about it and well yeah so it wasn't even so much suddenly it was it was just this long time thing coming we had a lot of deep rooted issues within the relationship that went unaddressed or at least i would try to address them and she would just keep sidestepping them or saying we can get to that later and later never came there was lots of uh like i said communication issues there were lots of intimacy issues that that kind of developed themselves into her saying and doing things that made me feel extremely unattractive mm -hmm. uh and like i didn't deserve to be with her um so see now that's because it when you say like putting it off and later never came that's avoidance mm -hmm. but saying things to make you feel unattractive and unimportant that's sure. abusive oh no she would she would point out how i still would you know <laughs> i would still get acne and i was losing my hair and I always look tired and so that's not avoidance. That's abuse on top of avoidance. Yeah. And it was never cute. It was never like, mm. a, 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 no, like you it doesn't know. sound cute to <laughs> say that stuff. Yeah. But, no. <laughs> but when you opened up to her and you, when you told her that you thought you were having some. Yeah. Well, so what happened was she, she went away on a trip for, she very suddenly told me like two weeks before she did it. She's like, I'm going to London for a bit. I'm just, I'm just going. And uh, and I said, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll see you later. And while she was gone, that's when I uh, had a lot of time to myself to really think about um, wh where I was in life and what I was doing in our relationship. And at that point, I definitely had, I guess, the most uh, tangible or prominent thoughts of of self-destruction. I was... I was working at a Whole Foods in Columbus Circle, which if you've ever been to that Whole Foods, it's a it's a huge circus of people. Mm -hmm. It's it's poorly organized. It's the most stressful job ever. I was making nothing and I was not really booking very much work. I mean, I've got a few things, but it was like it didn't really nothing was like putting me on the map and like um, you know, it was I knew it was going to be hard, but I didn't realize quite how hard it was going to be. And just sort of everything was kind of crumbling inward for me and there was, I remember days where it was so, I was so stressed at work and I felt utterly trapped. I really felt like I, I, I never really came up with a plan, but I knew that I wanted to end it. And I later had like the ability to like sort of step back and realize, oh, this isn't healthy. This isn't normal. And I need to talk to someone about it. And even though I had this fraught relationship with my girlfriend at the time, I, uh, she came back from London mm -hmm. and I finally decided that I was going to tell her, um, everything that I had been depressed for a very long time before she even knew me, um, that I had destructive thoughts and I didn't know where to go. Um, and I really needed some help. Mm -hmm. And when I did, she immediately responded with, uh, well, 
that's too bad. You should probably see someone about that, maybe a doctor. Okay, we need to talk. And she broke it off with me right there. Do you think she might have been thinking about breaking it off before you said that? Or do you think it was because you said that? I don't know. I don't think it was because. Either way, the timing. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, I, uh, well, it was okay. Uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but um, I don't think she broke it off maybe because, specifically because of that moment. Um, that would be, I think, <laughs> a little insane. Well, um, not the best word choice, but. Um, <laughs> well, but you know, I get it. I mean, no, I, I think, well, I, so I said earlier, she didn't really ever give me a definitive reason mm -hmm. as to why, because when I said, why are you doing this? She said, well, you know, uh, we, I, my, my career is taking off and we don't really hang out with the same friends. And I said, we well, just hung out with your friends on the 4th of July, like two weeks ago. And she goes, yeah, but you know, whatever. And it was all these like excuses that you give someone that you've seen for a few months and maybe are on the precipice of, are we exclusive or not? And, you know, not someone you've been with for two right. plus years who you've been very intimate with and like have shared. And who just told with. you yeah. that they have, I mean, well, yes. yeah. So it doesn't just stop there. It's, it's that, and she does mention that she's felt this way for at least three months. Um, and at that time. And so not only does she, break it off with me but then she immediately says and i need and i want you to move out of the apartments you have exactly one month to move out and i know you paid and she was saying well my it's only my name on the lease so it's my apartment mm -hmm. and she again never gave a reason as to why um you know I, it was just it's my apartments this relationship's over you must go and it, it was almost when that all happened i remember thinking just immediately having this this thought of oh my god i justified so much verbal abuse from this person so much emotional abuse from this person it it felt like she was basically saying everything i ever said and did to you i just got away with it and there's nothing you can do about it and so this was so okay yeah so this okay so not to because this isn't about, or this isn't a relationship episode or whatever, but but this was a trigger. So it's a long preamble. Well, to the, the, this was thing. a real trigger, though. So this sent yeah. you from your what you had been dealing with in terms of depression and mood. This was a trigger that really sent you down a dark place. So what yeah. when she when this happened and she sent you basically out, mm -hmm. what happened? Well, so that yeah, happened. it was just years and years and years and years of depression, just sort of like culminating to this one moment of you have this devastating blow where the person you thought you could trust can no longer trust them that they have been they've been right in front of you saying and doing these horrible things to make you feel like a piece of dirt for the last nearly two years that you've been living with her and yeah i had a complete emotional breakdown and i re all i really remember is leaving the apartment and just sort of wandering around for a bit. I think I remember calling my mom and, and just sort of sobbing over the phone about what happened. And I vaguely remember like maybe texting a friend that she had broken off with me, but I remember ending up in a park in uh, kind of the Gowanus Prospect Lefferts area. And I remember sitting on this park bench that was maybe like roughly 15 feet away from the street and 
having just thoughts that more or less culminated to, okay, this is it. It, it, it's there's no coming back from this. I might as well end it. Is real. So this was the most real. Yeah. Like, this is yeah. like this was no longer nihilist. Like mm-hmm. I just wish I could just neatly poof disappear, no and no longer exist. This was I'm going to end it right now. As, as dramatic as overly dramatic as it sounds, but I mean again, you have to understand that like you know with this mental illness, it's uh, the thing I tell a lot of people is that you can. You can make a airtight case as to why things aren't nearly as bad as you think they are, that you, you know for a fact that your friends and family love you, that everything is going to be okay if you just persevere, but depression will be that one thing that looks at your airtight case and goes, yeah, but what if that's not true? And that completely decimates it. That's all it needs to do. And That's funny you say that because do you know who Dick Cavett is? Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't, he's an old pro he had a lot of talk shows he's a very smart guy and he talks a lot about depression because uh, he's suffering i mean he really mm-hmm. suffers from a hard time and he told a very he's told a lot of interesting stories about it and one of the things that he talks about is kind of like what you just said and it, it's really stuck with me here i'll play it for you and we'll talk about it sure yeah is there a better word for depression it used to be melancholia in the old days i would submit despair the only, the only thing I have against it is it, does, it isn't brutal enough. Uh, somebody tells me that on a show I once said it's something you wouldn't wish on Hitler. If you've had it, you, only then can you understand the phenomenon of if there were a magic wand eight feet away that would cure you, it's too much trouble to go pick it up. And it probably wouldn't work in your case anyway because your brain is clearly busted, whatever people are telling you. And you're going to be the exception that isn't going to come out of it. So that <laughs> yeah. so there's two parts of that that stick out to me. First is the part where he says, if there was a magic wand eight feet away, it's just too much trouble to get up and mm-hmm. get it. That to me is the difference between everyday sadness and real depression. And you know, I I don't think I've I don't think I've dealt with depression in the clinical sense of uh, like an actual natural imbalance i think i dealt with it in the sense of from a withdrawal mm-hmm. of because when you when you've been taking anything for too long or whatever and you, and you stop taking it even a psychological dependence you might not be physically dependent but a psychological dependence and when you are going through those first days or whatever it was like i remember laying in the bed and it was i there i was with someone at the time because we had been together for a long time and i just remember saying like I have anxiety, like I couldn't, I couldn't, it, it, it truly is inexplicable Yeah, because it was like, I have anxiety and I didn't want to move. And yeah. I was actually saying that to them as like, help me. It was, it was awful. Yeah. And, and then, that's a different thing than just sadness. You know, it's, it's a debilitating thing. Oh yeah. It's this thing that that's absolutely mentally crippling. And yeah, I absolutely identify with, with what uh, Dick Cavett said, not just with the magic wand thing, but also like the thing of, well, it's never gonna it's not going to work on me. I, I don't just, you know, you, you feel like you don't deserve help, but this is just right. your thing and you did something or your brain's uh, unexplainably just... cosmic to deserve this. And it doesn't really matter what it is you did or didn't do to deserve this. It's now this is your problem and it's your fault. And, and, and you're how dare you feel this way? <laughs> well, and you're stuck. It's you're yeah. not going to, even if you did A, B, C, or D, whether it's taking an antidepressant or sure. whatever, it's just not going to work and it's not worth it because you're mm-hmm. in a state where it's like, get an antidepressant, then I have to go to the doctor, I have to go to the fu- it's fuck. Like, it. 
Yeah, no, I've, I've been doing this for a while. I've been making it work. I can just keep going. But you could. So, so you find yourself in a park. Yeah, I find myself in a park, and I and it seems perfectly logical at the time to be like, I'll just walk into traffic because I might as well. It's not going to get better. I've disappointed everybody. I told everyone I was going to move to New York with the woman that I loved, and I was going to be an actor and uh, and I was going to be happy and none of that happened. And even though at that point I hadn't even been in New York for two years and I, the thing that stopped me was thankfully my, my two of my oldest friends two my best friends who live in New York found me in the park. Now that part in your, in the, your post, yeah, that stuck out to me. Now, was that just coincidental? No, I think looking back and I don't have much memory uh, actually doing this because it was a, it was a haze. I the the time between leaving the apartment and actually showing up on the park bench was I don't remember a lot of specifics. I I might have told them where I, they I think they asked me where was I and I think I, I so you text, had okay I, so you yeah, had reached out to them. I did reach out to them that, yeah so I at least in the, I can look back in text and see like oh I did do this this and this mm-hmm. so I don't know there's definitely at least a part of me that was, was cogent enough to be like this is where I am well, and I need God. you right now. Mm-hmm. Um, even if I don't, if I didn't say that specifically, but yeah, my, my wonderful friends, Christy and Scott found me and they were able to talk me down and help me out. Um, and yeah, they're, they're wonderful because of that. they're wonderful for a multitude of reasons, but because of that, I remember that happened. Wait, can I just, before we move on, yeah, from yeah, that, yeah. I just want to say something about, cause I was, it's funny. I was talking earlier in the show about just a cabaret benefit thing that I produced for Radio Free Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And talking about showing up and I was like, if, if I were to die, if I were to be told I'm going to die in 24 hours and I want to do this, this and leave some advice for whatever, my only advice for the world is show up yeah. now in New York, especially, you know, when you're young and busy and whatever people are, you know, you're tired, you're busy. You don't want to get on the subway. You don't want to show up. It's very easy not to show up for, and you'll justify not going to anything. Oh, absolutely. Whether it's a show <laughs> or something like this, I could see you know, you hear stories all the time about someone saying like, oh, yeah, my friend said that they were upset or whatever. But, you know, they say that all the time. Mm-hmm. I just said, look, get some sleep. We'll talk tomorrow. Had your friends not shown up. And mm-hmm. this is a, so important, really. Show up. Yeah. Like, had they not shown up, who knows what would have happened? Right, right. It's really. OK, so they show up. They find you. They, thank God. Yeah. No, uh, they're they're able to talk to me for a bit I uh, and talk me down and help me out. Um, and they like on the spot said, if you need a place to stay, you can stay with us indefinitely. Um, and I stayed with them for a few months before I was able to find a new place. Um, I <laughs> remember thinking on top of all this, I still had to go to work. <laughs> which I remember, I remember making a joke. It's, it's one of them saying like, well, if I were dead, I didn't have to go to work, but now I have to and so, and now you, well, and then you were back out, killing, you know, well, walking well, in the traffic. So no, no, well then I did go to work and less than, I thought I, I thought I was able to calm down and less than 45 minutes into being there. I had a panic attack and thankfully my boss, uh, understood. I was clearly going through something, said, you can go home if you need to calm down, if you need tomorrow off, that's fine too. Um, and when I eventually did go back into work, mm-hmm. um, my boss, who's not, I think about the same age as me. We talked for a bit and it turned out she went through like amazingly sort of the same situation a few years earlier. And she 
said, if you need more, if you need like to leave early at any point to go look for a place to live, or if you need to do something else like that, let me know. I remember she gave me this really interesting piece of advice um, where she said, if you're ever at work again, because we were at a whole, this was at, I was at this point working at the Whole Foods in Gowanus, um, much better organized than the one in, <laughs> in yeah. near Central Park. But uh, she said, if you're ever having a panic attack again um, and you're here, just excuse yourself, go to one of the walk-in freezers and just stand in there for like five or 10 minutes because your body will get so cold that naturally you're, it's some weird reaction with your heart rate that make, it basically forces your body to um, have to take deep, slow breaths. And I was wow. having such a panic attack where I was hyperventilating at the time. Wow. Like I, when I finally excused myself from the store when that happened, I remember I was wearing my work shirt and I had a regular shirt in my bag. And I remember grabbing my other shirt from my bag and like balling it up and putting it against my mouth so I could like force myself to take in less air. So is that what they, is that what is that what they're trying to do when you see like in the TV shows they take out a paper bag? Yeah, they, basically, <laughs> it's like they're trying to. I think they're trying to restrict how huh. much air is going in. It's basically you know it's 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 forcing a, a bit of a blockage. It's okay. a, so that way it's impossible for you to take in so much. It's, it's uh, at, at a certain, you know, at, right at that moment. Interesting. Yeah. Well, okay. So it's funny. You said you had to go to work. Well, mm -hmm. I, again, <laughs> I turned to Dick Cavett because he has a good point and something that, and we'll talk about this because it leads us to how, what I was talking about when you first got here about just our experience in the improv class. Sure. So, all right, here's Dick. I did a show once with Lawrence Olivier and his wife in my worst state and got to the hotel where they were staying. That's where we were taping in a suite. And they had one for me downstairs. And all I wanted to do was not even go to makeup. I wanted to get into the bed. And I thought, if you had told me as a kid when I saw Henry V and Hamlet and the, that I would be d doing a show with Olivier and not give a damn, and then sitting there doing it, thinking what I'm talking must be what psychologists call word salad. What a wonderful phrase, self-explanatory. Olivier is too smart not to see that I'm nuts. <laughs> and I must be taking at least 40-second pauses. And someone is going to come over any moment and say, it's all right, Dick, we will uh, dispense with this tape and send the Olivier's home and you can go lie down. And I couldn't watch the shows. And by accident, two years later, rerun in a motel, I saw them and I looked fine. And the only lesson valuable from that is you don't look as bad as you feel. This is for those who have to go to work. On the other hand, I think there's a danger in it. You can fool a doctor because of embarrassment of what you have. Okay, so a few things I want to talk, mm -hmm. touch on from that. So we met at the, in that improv class, yeah. and while you hadn't broken up with your girlfriend at the time, Obviously, things weren't going well in the relationship. And sure. So did you feel like you were constantly masking how you were really feeling? Yeah. I mean, looking back, absolutely. I think when, I don't know what it was that I told you specifically, um, but I do remember saying to a lot of my friends, like just in, in a broad sense, like explaining kind of her behavior and how our relationship works and really... I think, I, I think the thing I repeated a lot was I said, well, we have kind of like a Kirk Spock relationship from mm -hmm. Star Trek. Like she's, she's the more, she's Spock. She's more like 
emotionally controlled and, and analytical. You know, she's a journalist. She has to constantly, my, my, my parents are journalists. I've seen this, like they, they are very analytical and especially my dad. And But they're not emotionally abusive. No, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, with the emotional abuse stuff, like a lot of that, I like very rarely did I was I immediately like, oh, I don't deserve to be spoken to that way. It was. But do you think that's because maybe you re- that's what I mean? Like, I think it was it had a lot to do with the depression. Yeah. I think it was because, again, like it was I would constantly justify it with. And I think this is a very much a repeating theme in any kind of abusive relationship where where I would find myself constantly thinking I know she doesn't mean that because I know she loves me. I know that when she says this thing that makes me feel like I'm out of my elements or that I'm ugly, that maybe she meant it as a joke or maybe she was upset. And I think if she were, if she, if, uh, if she had, a, uh, if cooler has prevailed, she wouldn't actually say that. And I think it was, that was just coming from me being so terrified of losing a re- the, the a relationship, whether if it was good or bad, where I said to someone for the first time in my life that I love you, mm-hmm. and they immediately said it back without any hesitation. I was so terrified of losing that, and I was so scared of, I guess at that, and if I really dug into it, I wasn't scared of really losing her, but I was scared of being alone, mm-hmm. and that's something that you know I've I've felt like that for a long time for various reasons, just this fear of being alone and fear of never really being accepted, being in a relationship like that or, 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 or otherwise. But I, uh, yeah, I just, I think I, I've, I've gotten better at, at not feeling that way. And it's, I think that's part of like how I, but I think that's something that's come out of me now in a healthy way, deal like dealing with my anxiety and my depression. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, uh, yeah, to go back to, to how I was sort of like explaining this relationship, I would say like, you know, she's very analytical and I, I'm, you know, I try to be more open and more gregarious and we might not match up on every little thing, but we get each other and we kind of give each other a balance, which, you know, maybe when things were better, that might be, there might be a kernel of truth there. But like the fact of the matter was, is that I think, you know, to her credit, she was probably in a relationship she didn't want to be in and to an extent. Did you say to her credit? What? Well, yeah, but, but here, hold, hold on. <laughs> okay, hear me out. Sure. Again, I have no desire to ever speak to this person again. Oh, okay. I, I've never been so profoundly personally hurt in my life. Not only did she break up with me and not only did she say, and then you have to move out. There were a series of emails uh, and voice messages and texts from her where she continued to say things to make me feel horrible. She at one point straight up said, I don't owe you anything. And in fact, you, she at one point said, I owed her $10,000 in back rent because of the agreement we had on day one. And and then at one point she arbitrarily said, um, when I had maybe like, I think a little over two weeks before I could move out. And at the time I was still looking for a place to live and I was trying to find a new job uh, that where I can earn more money. Um, cause I was already working full time at Whole Foods. She said, you know what? Uh, I actually want my apartment back sooner. So you've now have a week less. And I said, that's not fair. You can't do that. And she goes, well, it's my apartment, so I can get out. And what's wrong with this? I mean, I this don't. is not a normal thing. No. Yeah. She's a bitch. To her credit. I understand if she was suddenly in a relationship, she didn't want to be in anymore. Or if she was having issues with it, I, I'm not going to pretend I didn't, never made any mistakes. However, mm-hmm. she never 
spoke about anything that upset her. She just sort of would just get mad at me and I'd say, what's wrong? Can we talk about it? And she would say no. And then she would just sort of let it simmer and be alone for a while or, and then and that build up it. rage. That's yeah. probably what this is. I mean, like I know people like that and, mm-hmm. and then you, they just become resentful because they're, because whatever they're mad about at a, in a, at a moment never gets worked out. It just kind of goes into this pool of resentment and rage yeah. and then it just kind of simmers there forever. And when you put that kind of person with someone like me who has at the time undiagnosed depression, who is constantly down on himself, who it constantly feels like if there's something wrong where I'm, you know, even slightly a, 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 a part of it, that it's absolutely my fault. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and she's telling you that. Yeah. At times <laughs> she, yeah. You know, it's just, she would, she would take every little moment she could to like, just sort of demean me. Bad, or, bad combination. Mm-hmm. So when did you go see someone and really get help? Well, it's uh well, the first thing I did was because also at the time, uh, my insurance was completely screwed up. Am I being punked? I had insurance through New York state of health. Um, that was fine. And then I, I completely missed my deadline to renew my insurance. And at the same time, uh, as I was working for Whole Foods, even though I explicitly told them I don't need insurance from you, they enrolled me in an insurance plan that I was paying for out of my paycheck. I didn't realize. So when my, my New York insurance expired, I had this really awful Whole Foods insurance. So then I, through a million phone calls, I was able to get on, uh, I don't remember if it's Medicaid or Medicare, which mm-hmm. one's for older people? Um, for older people? Or, or, yeah. Or Medicare. Yeah. So I was on Medicaid. Okay. Um, so it was, I wasn't entirely aware of like uh, a, a therapist who worked on a, on a pay, on a pay scale mm-hmm. or a sliding scale. Um, and certainly the, my insurance situation didn't really give me a lot of options. Mm-hmm. So what I did do was, um, cause I was still enrolled in classes at the UCB as I went to uh, have student affairs. Uh, Marissa Tunis is her name. She's absolutely wonderful. She did absolutely all the work. Like I just sort of came in and barely suggested it, but now she's uh, helping run this monthly um, group support nice. uh, thing within the UCB that uh, I've, I've been attending that. I just yesterday got my insurance like completely figured out. Okay. So, um, but you did, you said in your post that you were, you did, Manage to get on an antidepressant. Yeah, I'm. I'm on a. I'm on a low. Uh. Uh. uh what's the word? It's. It's a. It's a. It, well, it's a generic version of Elevil, and I'm on a low dosage of that. Mm-hmm. Um. It's such a subtle, tiny switch. Um. When I'm on that, but it makes so, such a difference. Really? Yeah. It's like the only super obvious things I I noticed from it when I took it was the first two days I took it. I was constantly drowsy. I was also still working at Whole Foods and like having to wake up at four in the morning to get there by six. Right. So that lack of sleep combined with antidepressants like really made for a very zonked out version of myself. But after mm-hmm. two days, I think my body adjusted. And um, I mean, I'll be honest, it's not like the depression just went away, but it made dealing with my emotions a lot easier. So you end your post, which by the way has been Got picked up by the Huffington Post, which yeah, we'll post a link to. That's that was kind of crazy how that happened. Actually, also because of the UCB in a way, that's what happened. Oh, yeah. Um, it was someone. Um, it might have been in the class that we were in. Oh yeah. Um, was, uh, I don't think she would mind me mentioning her. her um, Madeline Wall, mm. who's a. Uh, oh, that's right. She works there. Yeah, yeah. She's an editor at Huffington Post, and she saw. So, so the 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 post that you're referring to, um, I yeah, I made this very public long, I guess you could say it's sort of a 
a short essay of me dealing with hmm. depression. And it basically came down to it, it was stigma, right? Yeah. Well, a I was I was doing it because I wanted to say publicly, first of all, uh, that I have depression. It's been something I've dealt with for a long time, but not in a healthy way. It came to a head after I was in this really horrible relationship where this person didn't understand me and didn't care how I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm dealing with it in a healthy way now. And if you're reading this and you're dealing with the same things, don't make the mistakes I made. And if you could sum up those mistakes, what would you say the biggest mistake you made were? Going untreated? Um, being untreated at the time? Yeah, going untreated. But I think um, the thing that can lead to treatment is ultimately, and I, this is also the thing I think was lacking in my, in my relationship, was um, being able to talk about it. I and, think why, and why weren't you able to talk about it? Because I was terrified of it. I even even if you removed my ex from the from the from the equation mm-hmm. and and i would think like well if i need to talk to someone about this the first people i need to talk to are my parents or my family mm-hmm. and my parents are wonderful my sister is wonderful my my immediate family is is had my back forever mm-hmm. i was still did they have any inkling that you were dealing with all this stuff oh sure okay. um i think well i mean i think they so when i eventually did tell them after so after the the dust settled from the breakup and all that i contacted my parents and said look um i'm well first we talked about it. i said i think i have depression and um <laughs> the first thing one of the first things my mom said was yeah that makes sense why did she has she dealt with it have any of your family it turns out it's it's very much in my family oh wow that <laughs> so, would have been good to know well yeah well it's, the thing is like i mean i you know i i'm sure, i know my parents did have done the and continue to do the best they can mm-hmm. but i don't i mean how do you broach that subject it's not like well, isn't I can't that, imagine like my parents, like or anyone's parents, going up to them at a young age, going, "Look, just so you know, uh, your your great grandfather once killed himself. So just so you know, this may happen to you. Okay, bye." And then, well, so, well it not to be glib to, about but it. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, like, well, okay. So the headline that Huffington Post created for your yeah. post was something about like, "There's nothing wrong with depression" or something. Yeah, there's no with, shame in, in having depression. I think so what that was the think, headline that Madeline chose for me. So yeah. what do you think? And you, and you mentioned it in your post too about there's no shame in having depression. It's easier said than done, but being able to talk about it with those you trust will do worlds of good and stuff. Why do you think there is such a stigma nowadays in um, America, in particular? Well, I mean, well, first of all, I I can't claim to be a, an expert on this. I can only really speak to my own. Well, why? Yeah. Why did but you feel? If I had to guess, I mean, I think it really ultimately comes down to people fear what they don't understand. I think it was, you know, it's probably born of like several, several, several years of, of people having to deal with the, with, you know, mental illness on, on several varying levels. And because, you know, long ago, we didn't have the faculties to really deal with it um, or, or completely comprehend it. I think because it was a strange thing that you couldn't really see, mm-hmm. um, Right, because when, people can yeah. disguise it. Yeah, they, you can disguise it, or if it does come out in its in its worst form, it, it can be frightening sure. to to anyone, who, even if even your loved ones. I mm-hmm. think because of that, um, you know, it's just it's this scary thing that not everyone can really completely understand. Depression can be very easily written off as as just sadness, mm-hmm. and and um, I I think as a society we've still we've made 
leaps and bounds in understanding what depression is and what mental illness is. But I, you know, like I think there's still a ways to go as far as being able to uh, not only sympathize with those who have it, but also be able to help them get the treatment that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I remember reading an article not that long ago in psychology today saying that uh, roughly 60 percent of people in our country who have some uh, form of mental illness don't actually get the the treatment that they need. Mm. Um, and a lot of that tends to be born out of embarrassment. Uh, right. That's all in turn born out of the stigma. That comes right. From that. And do you think it also might have to do, especially nowadays with seeing it as some form of weakness or fail personal failing? Mm-hmm. I think, I think it's that I think, I think uh, for whatever reason, a lot of, uh, Depression tends to get get sorry it gets tied to yeah this this idea that you're weak that you're a failure I I I know when I thought when I was going to kill myself that I like I said I thought I completely failed that I was this fraud that I completely screwed up that uh, I didn't deserve love I didn't I didn't deserve any uh, support I had from my loved ones because at this point I completely failed them mm. um, I never really the the other than the handful of times that like when i would come to um my girlfriend at the time like for help whether if it was me then telling her i i thought about killing myself or or other things i was dealing with and just being brushed aside uh other than that i've never had anyone straight up say you're weak because you have this problem but Again, going back to the whole thing of like you can build an airtight case in your head of why things aren't as bad as you th- might perceive them to be, and depression can come along and completely obliterate that entire case with like you know little to no effort. Mm-hmm. It's uh, while no one specifically said you're weak and you're broken and you're a bad person for feeling this. Like my brain did all that work for me. Right. It it filled in those blanks and and it would say like you know you don't deserve this thing that you're getting. If you don't get it, you didn't deserve it. If you do get it, you're a fraud and you, you, this isn't going to last. And I would just be like, yeah, you're probably right. So, well, if there was something that I think we can really drive home and kind of leave people with, it's that, you know, we talked about being there. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I would say is because Dick Kevin, I don't have this queued up, but one thing he did say was when, if you suspect that someone might be, dealing with something really serious, like they've lost interest and stuff, you don't see them much anymore. If you think they might actually be depressed, don't just think, oh, I hope they're okay. You know, like you got, because, and he actually says this, and he points out that it might sound glib, but the fact is he says, truly depressed people commit suicide. Oh, sure. And if you are in like, if they don't get help, and you know, like he said in his story and the thing I was talking about, it. So it sounds like a lot of work to get up, find a doctor, get a prescription, blah, blah, blah. And like, if you, if they don't do that, if they don't get help, you never know what could happen. And if you think to yourself, if something were to happen and you were to think, oh my God, I just waited, you know what I mean? Like, well, the, the thing I, be there. the thing I remember writing in, in that post and in that article that um was the thing I especially wanted someone who was depressed that may have been reading it to really take away from it is, and first of all, yeah, you're completely right. Um, if you suspect anything of mm-hmm. that, of, that you should definitely take the moment to talk to your friend and make right. sure they're okay because you could be a person that, that gives them the strength to talk about it. And 
as far as like having to give yourself the strength to come up and pull yourself up and say, I have this issue and I'm, I need help. Um, it's so, it's, it sounds so simple to do, but it's also absolutely terrifying because you constantly have this fear that you're going to be rejected. And in my case, you were, I was the very first, the literal very first person I talked to absolutely rejected me. And again, I'm not saying like, well, because I had depression, she shouldn't have broken up with me. I think she could have handled it a million different ways, or she could have done a lot of things prior to this that could not have led to this maybe. But my ultimate point is that she's a bitch. Yes. The worst thing that could possibly have happened when I talked to someone about it did happen. But immediately, if not, maybe not immediately, but shortly after when I made this post on Facebook, the amount of people that did come to my support, whether if it was just like saying something in the, in the comments or, or actually talking to me in person or whatever, vastly overwhelmed. Did it surprise you? It was, I was very surprised. I, I thought some people would see it and go, I, I hope you're okay and all that. But it was like literally like hundreds. I don't remember the exact number, but it was absolutely hundreds of people mm-hmm. were like, were, were, were reacting to it and commenting on it. And that's the best thing I can hope for is that more people can see what I wrote and hopefully identify and hopefully can be inspired to uh, take action and, and better themselves. And I know it's not easy, but the, something this important is never going to be easy. Right. Well, I wish it were easy. I truly wish it were that easy, but it's it, it, the moment you're able to make that first step towards talking to somebody about it mm-hmm. and realizing it's not as difficult as you thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, so, it's, it's once you get past that first moment, it gets so much easier. Well, it's funny because this actually just reminded me throughout your post, you talk about, you actually say coming out as depressed. Mm-hmm. You refer to coming out a number of times as depressed. And in a I, lot, well, in a as lot a, of ways, as a boring straight dude, I felt a little weird typing it that well, way. No, it was like, I don't know how else to but phrase the way, this. Even this, even just this <laughs> conversation, it makes, it's very much like that because you know, with gay people, you know, you the reason they are in the closet is because of fear of rejection. Mm-hmm. Uh, they think that it's abnormal. It's, you know, there's something wrong with them. It'll just go away, literally. I mean, like, when you're young and you think you might be gay, your first thought is, well, no, this could never happen to me. This will wear off or something. So you don't talk about it. The fear grows. We stigmatize it. Mm-hmm. And then you hear about, and this is something that's been said since the 70s with Harvey Milk and whatnot. Yeah. He was a very aggressive proponent of, coming out because when somebody knows someone who's gay or whatever, and nowadays everyone does sure. because of stuff like this, yeah. that's what causes acceptance, awareness, and also a whole culture change. You know, when you know people who are gay and who deal with this or that or that or this, A, you can recognize it, B, you get more comfortable with it, and C, you know, it's not as scary. And if you talk about stuff like this, whether it's depression or any other mental illness like that it is kind of the same thing, you know, talking about it, spreading awareness. That is because if you know someone who's depressed or who's dealt with this stuff, a, you can recognize it in others and B, you just know how to be there, when to be there. And people who are depressed won't be so scared to talk about it, mm-hmm. you know? So it is very similar. I think yeah. obviously it's a different, you're coming out as something different, but the process and the reason of being in a closet metaphorically speaking, is the same. Fear of, you know, rejection and whatnot. By the way, always, always, always remember that you can go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com slash pledge to make donations. We are a 501c3, so 
any and all donations you make are tax deductible. You can donate to the station as a whole. We need every penny. Or better yet, you can go to rfb.nyc slash nbt and donate specifically to this show. If you go to that website, rfb.nyc slash nbt, you'll see a button that says sponsor this show. You click on that and then you can decide how much to donate. You can decide whether it's going to be a one-time donation, a monthly donation. If you want to make it a monthly donation, you can make it for as small as $2 a month, $1 a month. It doesn't matter. But again, 501c3. So anything you donate is tax deductible. All right. So please, please consider doing that. It would really help us out and we would really, really appreciate it. You're listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. Look, if someone tells you, it's not like you were dropping hints. You said, I'm depressed. <laughs> and you told her that you had suicidal thoughts. If somebody says that, believe them. Even if, even if they've said it before, it doesn't. I mean, I don't care. If somebody says that, be there for them. Because if you're not, they might not be there literally. Yeah. And you do not want to find yourself thinking, oh my gosh, what if I had uh, thanks so much for coming in, Sam. We appreciate you sharing your story. I end the show every every week by saying apathy is the enemy for Radio Free Brooklyn. This is the next best thing. Don't go.